afternoon tea, a nice curry, and craft gin distilleries. This week, we're in London, England. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week, we explore the unique cuisine of a different foodie city and talk about the best places to eat, drink, and explore there. And this week, we're in London. Long gone are the days of boring English food. Today, London is one of the leading foodie cities in the world, from extravagant afternoon teas to wonderful curry dishes at Indian restaurants to unique gins from micro distilleries. The British capital has enough interesting spots that can keep you busy for days on your vacation or weeks or even a whole lifetime. I'm going to talk shortly with David Cotter. He's a foodie tour guide in London, and he's going to tell us about his favorite spots, including the Borough Market, the oldest food market in London. It goes back a thousand years. But before we start, if you're interested in the UK culinary scene, go to episode 43 of the Destination Eat Drink podcast. We check out the best places to eat and drink in Glasgow, Scotland. And you can go to destinationeatdrink.com for foodie city guides to Liverpool, to Dublin, Ireland, to Glasgow too. Now, during my talk with David, I do mention Rachel Lawden, who I spoke with on episode 41 of the podcast. And during this episode... I use the term imported cuisine when talking about one of Rachel's findings in her research. And when I said imported cuisine, I misspoke. Uh, That term is actually transplanted cuisine. So when you hear me say that, know what I mean. Okay, let's talk about London with David Cotter. Destination, eat, drink. My guest today is David Cotter. David is the London City Food Manager for Secret Food Tours. He operates five food and drink tours in London, including an Indian food tour, a traditional British food tour, and a gin tour. David, welcome to Destination Eat Drink. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, David, whenever I speak to someone who's in the food tourism business, they always have some kind of interesting backstory because no one ever starts out in the food tourism business. There's always something that happened before. So <laughs> yeah. what's your history? What's your background before you got involved in food tourism? Right. Well, I'm a Londoner, born and bred. Um, I've always had uh, a bit of an obsession for food. Uh, sometimes make a joke about when I, uh, when I was younger, as opposed to being outside playing with uh, other kids or even inside playing on video games. I had uh, food network on and uh, oh, uh, good, good food or the all the food channels on sort of getting all quizzed up on that and I used to love reading cookbooks loved 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 uh, reading cookbooks uh, but more importantly I loved cooking and uh, even more so I loved eating uh, <laughs> if you if you look at some earlier pictures of me you can probably tell that by uh, uh, the size of me as well but luckily I sort of uh, grew quite a few inches and that that balanced out uh, but I've always had uh, a big obsession for food uh, I love yeah cooking, love eating. Uh, what I did after school uh, was I actually went to a, a drama school uh, as a university, which is quite a full-on 
experience. You're, you're there Monday to Friday, uh, sort of 8 a.m. till 8 p.m. Uh, days. So that was uh, that was very hard work. Uh, and when that finished, uh, the sort of goal was to uh, try and get into the acting industry. Uh, but obviously, the acting industry is a very, very competitive industry. Um, I seem to have a fair bit of spare time on my hands when I was uh, in between jobs. Uh, so I thought, why don't I try uh, and make something of my biggest hobby, which is food, uh, and try and make that as uh, a part uh, and what it is now a significant part uh, of my career. So uh, I actually have my sister to thank for uh, getting me involved into uh, food tours and whatnot because she was actually uh, she was working out in Montreal uh, and she did a food tour out there, which uh, I believe was actually the secret food tour uh, Montreal that we have, uh, which is funny. And she um, she came home and she, she she was speaking to me and she sort of said, David, you're an actor, you know, you love uh, performing, you love being in front of people, uh, but you love food as well. Uh, why don't you get into food tours? Uh, so I thought, okay, that sounds pretty interesting. It was uh, slightly better than the uh, uh, call center job I had at the time, which was uh, selling insurance uh, over the phone. So uh, yeah, I did a bit of research and I came across secret food tours. Uh, and I originally uh, actually applied just to be a guide uh, for their tours, uh, sort of doing presumably part-time work uh, but the the position of the city manager kind of came up uh, which is more of a full-time role uh, and I was immediately interested by it. I, uh, I love food. Uh, if there's anything I can do uh, it's uh, talk about food <laughs> uh, and luckily a lot of this job involves talking about food, eating food, trying food, uh, testing new foods. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of uh, where I am today. And I would imagine that your theater training serves you well as a tour guide. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've I've always been fairly comfortable in front of people. Uh, and, you know, when you're a food tour guide, we do hire uh, a fair few actors. Actors are, uh, are good to hire for all sorts of jobs because they, they usually put in 100 percent and they're, they're good people's people. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, finding that balance between uh, giving people sort of a, a good performance on a food tour. But I think on the food tours, there has to be a, a big sense of uh, the person, uh, getting the, that person's actual personality as well. So uh, I think it's finding uh, finding that balance. But yeah, no, I've always been uh, I've always been comfortable with that kind of stuff. And uh, I forgot to mention as well. Uh, also, what was leading up to this job? Me and um, uh, my lovely girlfriend, uh, who uh, also happens to work uh, vaguely in the food industry. She's a, a food uh, writer, journalist. Uh, she works for a magazine called The Handbook. Uh, and she uh, she gets to go to a lot of restaurants and uh, uh, sort of bars, all sorts of press things. Uh, and I luckily get to be her plus one a lot of the time. So we get to uh, we get to dine out a lot, which is great. And uh, in terms of getting to know uh, London's food scene even better, uh, this has been instrumental. It's been absolutely fantastic. So we what we did is we actually. Uh, started as another hobby uh, we sort of started to build build our own foodie instagram called uh, food rhodesiac 
uh, you can kind of guess uh, what that's about. Um, okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we uh, we kind of do that as a hobby on the side as well because we go to eat a lot of places. We like to document all the uh, food that we eat. And if you're if you're lucky, every now and then you see me uh, in front of the camera as well doing a uh, a recipe for some people for those nights where we're just at home cooking. So uh, yeah, no, it's great. It's great. All, all things food related are good to me. <laughs> so you're doing the secret food tours now. And I mean, food tourism has just exploded in the last few years. What is yeah. specifically a secret food tour? What makes it secret? And what can people expect on a secret food tour? <laughs> well, first of all, lots and lots and lots of really good food. Uh, we say to our customers, come hungry. Uh, the worst thing to do is if you've got an 11 a.m food tour with us uh, is to have breakfast because this is not a tour where uh, we give you tiny little tasters. This is uh, proper stuff, or particularly the London uh, food tours. Uh, we give out lots and lots of food, good portions of it as well. Um, obviously, there's a lot of uh, tours globally uh, under the name Secret Food Tours. Uh, I haven't uh, unfortunately managed to do all of them because there's <laughs> uh, there's you know over 50 of them worldwide uh, but what makes the food tours in london secret is uh we have usually uh, a secret venue but also uh the main thing that's secret about each tour is uh, we have uh one thing which is uh not advertised on the website uh that people don't know about and that uh, is either a food item or a drink item. If it's on a gin tour or uh, on the beer tour, it's actually a venue. So uh, not to give too much away, but uh, yeah, the layout the layout of each tour is pretty similar. Uh, for the food tours, we like to visit between five and seven different venues, a variety of venues as well. Uh, you know, for the uh, London Bridge tour, obviously we have the luxury of having Borough Market. Uh, as our office for the day so uh, we we visit a good few food stores uh, we take people around uh, the historical sites and have a bit of uh, uh, food and drink around them and then we also end up going to a, a pub and a restaurant and along the way uh, we do give out our secret food uh, as well the drink tours uh, so the gin and beer tours uh, we usually take them to just a couple less venues, usually around four to five venues. Uh, and again, it's a similar layout. Uh, you want a variety of uh, venues uh, you know, for the gin tour. The gin tour is actually uh, uh, somewhat of a baby for me because uh, myself and my colleague Matt, we actually uh, created the gin tour very recently. And it's uh, only only uh, been launched on the website a couple of weeks ago. So it's a, a really exciting time for us. Um, but with the gin tour, we are... Uh, one thing that I didn't want to do was have just four, uh, four cocktail bars that uh, served gin. I wanted it to be a real variety uh, of venues, and I think we've uh, we've actually achieved that. So yeah, it's uh, exciting times for the uh, for the gin tour. Let's talk more about gin. I was going to wait to talk about uh, beverages later, but you brought it up, David. Then and so let's talk about gin because it's an exciting time now for gin because it's had this renewed popularity. When I was uh -huh. younger, it was kind of a grandmother's drink, you know, a gin and <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of giving away that I'm uh, that I'm how old I am, but you know, this is going. Going back yeah. into the 70s yeah. and you know that was something that your grandmother had but now 
there's all these great little micro gins that are coming out and it's so uh -huh. much more than just uh you know bombay or you know beef eater or yeah, whatever yeah. um talk about some of the different gins that are available where they're from and maybe one or two places that you might recommend for people to go to get a, a great drink with gin in it well, you know, without sort of sounding biased at all, I'd have to recommend our secret gin tour. It's uh, of course. <laughs> if, 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 if we're talking about London gins, you know, we give uh, around seven to eight different tasters of different London gins uh, on that tour, which is, you know, quite a hard thing to uh, find on any other experience, I suppose. But there's, uh, there's so many good venues around London. Obviously, you've got places like Soho which, uh, you know, have cocktail bars in abundance, which uh, have always had a really good selection of gins. You know, uh, you've got your, your classic London dry gins, but also uh, we're starting to see more of the old styles of old Tom gins coming about. And there's also other countries which are starting to produce gin as well, uh, which is really interesting. My favorite gin, funnily enough, uh, sorry, uh, sorry to say this about London, but uh, my favorite gin is actually distilled in Germany. It's a, oh. <laughs> it's a gin called Monkey 47. But, uh, <laughs> I, kind of, I love the name already. <laughs> exactly. Monkey 47. It's got 47 botanicals on it. But to, uh, to bring it sort of back to the London scene, uh, the reason I can kind of claim it as a London gin is because they make it in the style of London dry. So uh, it's still technically London, I think. But uh, <laughs> uh, that's there. That's a, that's a fantastic gin. But on the the gin tour uh, that we do. We actually start off uh, around the area of London Bridge, which is, you know, the heart of the city. You've got uh, the, the actual city of London where you've got the Gherkin, the walkie-talkie, just a stone's throw across the River Thames. Um, you've got Tower Bridge and London Bridge, you know, either side of you, Borough Market just up the road, the Shard looking over you. Uh, but yeah, we start it around there, which is great. And we go down a, a street called Bermondsey Street, which uh, is... May, may not be sort of uh, immediately recognizable, particularly for tourists, but it's uh, uh, Bermondsey has a great history about it. For a long time, uh, it was nicknamed London's Larder because uh, we used to keep so many different uh, spices and teas and herbs in all the wharves and warehouses uh, that they had down there. Um, but it's got a really great scene for, uh, for bars. Uh, they actually have moving slightly away from Geneva, great road in Bermondsey called the Bermondsey Beer Mile, uh, where they've got, you know, loads and loads of loads of great pubs that do uh, a fantastic selection of uh, craft beers, uh, great lagers, IPAs. Uh, but on the gin tour that we do, uh, we we like to I'm sort of, yeah, going back to mixing it up a bit, we go to a lovely cocktail bar to start and uh, we start off with like a really refreshing uh, a refreshing classic gin-based cocktail. Uh, then we go to a place which uh, uh, they their motto is they choose to infuse. Uh, and that was by their head barman who nicknames himself the Gin Engineer. Uh, so <laughs> pr pretty good name, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I must see myself as a bit of a gin engineer sometimes. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, they, uh, they play around with some really great infusions. Um, some you know, more familiar, uh, sort of sweet, floral, fruity. Uh, but they also, what I think is really fun and interesting, they play around with uh, some uh, really, really great uh, savory uh, and sort of slightly more interesting uh, infusions as well. So, yeah, that's Tanner & Co. They're a 
fantastic bar. But uh, I think the the highlight of you know sort of it's hard to choose, but the highlight of our gin tour would have to be our final venue, uh, only because um, for us on the, the drink tours in particular, uh, there has to be a sense of seeing how the actual spirit or beer is being made. Uh, it kind of adds so much more to the tour uh, rather than just going to, you know, four or five different bars. Uh, and the last venue that we've got is a fantastic Italian sustainable uh, street market called Mercato Metropolitano. Uh, and they they have some beautiful types of street food in there. Uh, but when you go in, it's, it's absolutely fabulous. You've got uh, all the botanicals for the gin growing around. So it's actually, okay. uh, yeah, they've got double use for it. You know, obviously they use these botanicals, but also it just makes the place look vibrant, smell amazing. And uh, it's really, really, really cool. They have their own microbrewery in there. Uh, but what's more important for us is they have their own craft distillery. Uh, and it's uh, at their gym and tonic bar and actually uh, distill and make three gins uh, on that site. And we're lucky enough to uh, get them to give us a nice, a nice talk about their process of making a gin, uh, what they use, and then they actually give us a tasting of all three of their, uh, their gins that they distill on site. So uh, that, that's incredibly special, but to me also it's incredibly important to have uh, on, uh, on a drinks tour because without that, you are just going to uh, some bars. That sounds just, I mean, I can't wait. I'm booking my flight now for London because that sounds like a place I could spend quite a bit of time. Uh, let's jump back into the food uh, for a yeah, moment, sure. David, because I think it's it's funny because Americans still hold on to this long, outdated stereotype that British mm -hmm. food is somehow uninteresting and bland. And London, in fact, is one of the most vibrant foodie cities in the yeah. entire world, not just Europe, the entire world. Um, when we talk about traditional British food, what are we actually talking about? What are some of the dishes that we're talking about? Well, look, you don't get much more traditional than proper roast beef, uh, Yorkshire pud, you know, Sunday roasts. Uh, you've also got uh, the classic fish and chips, uh, that has to be said to be, you know, one of the most popular and traditional uh, English dishes. Uh, you have uh, you have uh, bangers and mash. Uh, you've got pies, good good old-fashioned pies, steak and kidney pie with uh, mashed potato. If you want to be even more traditional, steak and kidney pudding. Have you ever heard of a steak and kidney pudding? No, can't say I have. Uh -huh. So it uh, follows a similar format to a pie in the sense that it's sort of a, a meat stew encased in pastry. However, rather than being baked in a short crust or puff pastry, it's actually more of a suet pastry, which uh, you, uh, what you do is you steam the whole uh, thing so it doesn't go crispy. It's uh, a much different texture, uh, but it's really, really traditional. And uh, a lot of uh, people, like, you know, my, my dad and his dad uh, sort of uh, back in, however long ago it was, uh, that you would have seen that uh, a lot more often as well. And that's, that's quite hard to find in uh, restaurants or pubs these days. But that is, that, that's, it's really good stuff. Uh, but also, I mean, look, England, we do really fantastic desserts. Desserts are uh, something that I feel that we don't get enough credit for sometimes. Um, you know, sticky toffee pudding is 
essentially our king of desserts. And, uh, we, you know, we have that as one of the dishes on our uh, on our borough market food tour, the London Bridge tour. Uh, and I've never met an American who hasn't enjoyed it. <laughs> it's, uh, I've, I've never met an American who hasn't enjoyed it. So, uh, yeah, that's it's amazing stuff. But we've also got, you know, trifle. Uh, apple crumble there's all sorts of crumbles you can make rhubarb crumble is even more british you know sort of rhubarb such a great british ingredient uh treacle tart uh, all these kinds of things are fantastic but um other than that you know one of the uh one of the other things that we have on our bar market food tour and this is a this is something i always love talking to our guests about uh, it's a we get it from the ginger pig butchers, which is a kind of a staple part of Borough Market. They do have a few other venues around London, but in Borough Market, they actually have two big venues, which is uh, amazing. And there, uh, they serve a world famous sausage roll. Uh, do you know what a sausage roll is, Brent? Yes, I've seen that in uh, other places mm-hmm. in the UK, although I've, yeah. I haven't in London. Yeah, well, sausage rolls, it's funny because sausage rolls uh, don't always have the best reputation because if you get it in your... Uh, sort of low standard butchers or supermarkets uh to be quite honest they can be pretty nasty <laughs> um, but it's low, one low, of those low grade low grade meat going in there and, and whatnot i mean if you can even call it meat honestly it's uh, <laughs> uh you're lucky if you've got meat in there sometimes but uh what the ginger pig do is they you know i, I say this to my guests uh, uh, i always say the line you know if you haven't noticed already, I'm a bit passionate about food. Uh, so for me to say something like this, it's, uh, it's, it takes a lot. And I actually say that the Ginger Pig's world-famous sausage roll is the best sausage roll I've ever had uh, in my life. It's, I think it's the best sausage roll in the world. Uh, and it's just beautiful because it kind of epitomizes what I think is truly great about British food, whether it's desserts or uh, savory dishes. Truly great traditional British food uh, is not too complicated and it highlights good ingredients. But, you know, to, to have a good sausage roll, to have a good fish and chips, to have a good, uh, you know, um, pie and mash, it has to have really good ingredients. And we're lucky, you know, if you go to uh, if you go to good quality farms, good quality butchers, bakers, we do have good quality ingredients. And this sausage roll highlights that it's just pork meat amazing quality pork meat which is obviously minced up uh it's got a high percentage of fat in it but you know let's not be scared of fat fat is flavor uh, and then the only other things that they're going to put in that meat mixture uh, are uh, you know sage pork's best friend bit of thyme bit of black pepper and maybe the odd fennel seed so you're really not mucking about with it too much uh, and it's also huge it's a massive sausage roll and it's all encased in a really buttery uh puff pastry where you can taste the butter so uh yeah it's a it's one of my favorite things uh, particularly on our tour because it's uh as i said it doesn't have the best reputation sometimes the sausage roll so to have something which uh, a lot of the time our customers uh frequently say is the best thing that they had on the tour is really special. I think we've kind of hit the nail on the head with that on our tour. High praise indeed. You've mentioned a couple of times, David, the bar market. Um, Mm -hmm. I assume this is, I haven't been there. I assume this is a a big food hall. Describe what's there. Describe what people can expect if they go visit. Okay. Well, so yeah, bar market, it's, you know, it's London's oldest market. It's renowned for being 
pretty much the best the best food market in London. We do have some other fantastic food markets like Spearfields Market, Camden Market, Portobello Market, but you know, Borough Market is uh, kind of has that uh, that history with it, and it's also the biggest. Um, what you could expect there is it's split into two parts. Um, it's also you know right opposite London Bridge Station, so. Uh, right in the heart of the city again. So it's separated into two parts. You've got the first part, which is uh, slightly newer. It's more of the street food part of the market. Uh, and here you're going to get a load of uh, different types of street food. And, you know, Bar Market has just got such an incredible uh, array of diverse street foods. It's uh, uh, phenomenal. You know, so this all kind of kicked off, like the whole kind of street food culture, uh, I think, in London, particularly in Bar Market, around 2008, 2009. I think, you know, the recession was going on in the world and people were sort of trying to count their pennies a bit more. So that culture of street food uh, really, really kicked off, you know, having something that is um, something that's affordable, something that's filling, but something that's delicious. Uh, and yeah, bar market on this street food part of the market has, you know, you've got Ethiopian curries, you've got traditional Thai sweet snacks, you've got, um, you know, Jewish bagels, you've got Thai, pad, pad, pad Thai uh, dishes. So I, I could go on forever. It's just got so much amazing stuff. And then you've also got uh, your classic English things as well. You've got uh, really beautiful grills that just have great quality sausages, great quality bacon. Uh, you know, sort of, you can get breakfast items like bacon and egg baps. That's actually what the first food item on our borough market tour is. And it's just, again, going back to that simplicity, simplicity when you've got really good quality, thick cut, uh, smoked bacon with a free range fried egg in a beautiful uh, brioche bun. It's, you don't need anything else with it. It's, it, it's just fantastic. Now, that's the first part of the market. Uh, there's also the more traditional part of the market, which has actually been on the site, that exact position, since 1756. Um, the market itself is believed to be there, to have been there since about 1014. Wow. But that's just when they have the first records of it. You know, people think it's been <laughs> around the, that area of Southwark next to London Bridge for uh, way before that. But 1756 is where uh, this second part of the market has actually been uh, on site all that time so that's pretty amazing and uh, kind of that, that has the more traditional sort of farmers market aspect to it you've got your fresh fruits your fresh vegetables but you've also got uh, lots of lovely artisan uh, shops that sell you know you've got an abundance of cheese everywhere cheese 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 you know there's so many cheese shops in bar market but uh, you know lovely uh, shops that do lovely jams chutneys uh, oils there's a fantastic uh, store that does beautiful, beautiful, beautiful truffle oils, and you know you can try the difference between white truffle, black truffle. Uh, it's just so such good ingredients, and you know different spice shops, uh, liquor liquor stores where you can get uh, really good quality craft uh, craft spirits. Uh, there's a, there's a great one called Cartwright Brothers. Uh, and they just have such a fantastic selection of uh, different wines. Uh, but, you know, more importantly, they've got amazing gins as well. Uh, and a lot of the gins that they have are sort of local gins as well. One of the gins that we actually use on our uh, our tour, Cartwright Brothers stock there. So it's uh, championing local uh, local produce, which is fantastic. You know, as an American, it cracks me up that the new 
part of the market is from 1756. Like that's the new part <laughs> here in the U.S. It's like 1756 is as old as you can get, but 1756 <laughs> is the new part of, of the market. In London, I mean, we're, it's it's funny because you know even as a Londoner, sometimes we take our rich history for granted, and you know we obviously have you know, sites in London such as you know, the Tower of London, which uh, just obviously to visually uh, epitomize how rich our history is. But uh, sometimes in places like Borough Market, you don't even realize that you're walking uh, on the history itself. And it's, uh, I, I really like that. That's, uh, that's quite cool to me. A place that's well over a thousand years old. Uh, you, David, <laughs> you mentioned the, the cheeses of England, and this is something that we should definitely talk about because, yeah, I, you yeah. know, as, as a person who's taken train rides throughout the UK, I, I, can't help but remember vividly as soon as you get out of London you're into these rolling green hills with these beautiful <laughs> farms and yeah. all spotted with cows that look like they're happy grazing and so uh in theory giving uh this wonderful milk that's creating these cheeses what are some of your favorite english cheeses and what would be some of the best cheese shops that we might go to in london when it comes to English cheeses, cheddar has to be talked about. It's uh, such a crowd pleaser. It's uh, cheddar is one of those things where <laughs> it's uh, there's a, there's a sort of saying that I said once that when it's uh, uh, when it's good, it's really really good. Uh, but when it's bad, it's still pretty good. Uh, and that <laughs> and that's we have, kind we of have that same saying in America about pizza. When it, when it's oh, good, really? it's great. <laughs> when it's bad, eh, it's still pizza. <laughs> exactly, ex exactly, exactly. But cheddar, cheddar kind of has that same sort of thing about it. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's such a crowd pleaser for uh, for people that aren't too keen on your softer cheeses or your funkier cheeses, your blue cheeses and whatnot. Um, you're hard pushed to find people that don't like a good uh, chunk of cheddar and you can do so much with it you know you can have it on a cheese board uh, you can have it. it's really popular to have in toasties or i believe you uh, across the pond you call them grilled cheese grilled cheese uh, yes yeah see cheddar is such a fantastic if you've got a good quality cheddar that's sure. pretty much the best cheese to use in a uh, in a grilled cheese um moving on to the blue cheeses you know again how could I not talk about Stilton? Uh, sure. It's it's so it's so so good. I just I, I love Stilton so much. It's I just think it's it's almost perfect. I I love I love cheese you know globally. I mean mainly the European cheeses. Um, you know, obviously it's <laughs> it'd be rude not to you know mention the the French and the Italians uh, and the Spanish. They obviously make some amazing cheeses. But in terms uh, of uh, types of blue cheese. I honestly don't think Stilton can be beaten. It's just got that perfect, perfect mixture uh, of sort of funky, but uh, still, still mature, and it still still tastes like cheese uh, in a way. I've I've had a lot of um really 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 funky blue cheeses from um uh, from France, which uh, have actually been almost too much for me. Sort of <laughs> when. <laughs> When you have them, you feel the the fumes come up your nose. It's right, almost like right. eating wasabi. It tastes tastes almost alcoholic. It's it's crazy, crazy strong. And I think Stilton just it has that mixture of being a blue cheese, but also uh, you know, sort of people people can enjoy it. Uh, but we've got some 
loads of other cool cheeses popping up uh, around the UK. Um, you know, one of the cheeses that we use in our tour, our bar market tour, is uh, uh, a brie, which is made in Cornwall, a Cornish brie. You don't actually have to make it in uh, in in France. It's not like a Champagne, or uh, where it has to be made in that region, or you know, Stilton has to be made uh, uh, from those regions as well. Um, with a brie, if you've got the right ingredients and you know what you're doing, you can make it anywhere. You can make some brie in, uh, you know, South Carolina. You can make <laughs> some Korean brie for all I know. But it's, uh, yeah, we've we've got some really good stuff going on. Let's talk about the influence of uh, ethnic cuisine in London because. I feel like one of the main drivers of this explosion of the English and London food scene is yeah. all of the ethnic cuisine, especially from former British colonies. And the first thing that springs to everyone's mind is all of the amazing in – I've had some of the best Indian meals I've ever had in my life in central London. Um, mm -hmm. Indian food is so important to the new British cuisine. Talk about um, the influence of of uh, Indian food and of some of the other ethnic cuisines on British food. Mm. Well, what can I say, Brent? You know, us Brits, we love a curry. We love, love, love a curry. And there's so many curry houses uh, in London. There's, there's so many. And, you know, chicken tikka masala, that famous dish, uh, that's basically what some people consider to be the national dish of England. That's how much we like curry. Um, and uh, we kind of sort of created that ourselves as well. So, you know, right. when we first started getting all these, uh, you know, sort of uh, the m waves of migration uh, into England, particularly London, um, you know, us Brits, we probably didn't quite have the palate to handle uh, some of the uh, some of the spicing, particularly uh, particularly chili. Uh, so we sort of adapted it uh, to, to fit our palates. But over the years, I think we are starting to get more used to the more authentic style of Indian foods. Uh, and now you're starting to see uh, loads of loads of really great places popping up, particularly, you know, Brick Lane uh, has to be talked about. It's, you know, we, we nickname it uh, the Curry Mile uh, and our secret Indian food tour. Uh, basically takes you to some absolutely fantastic hand-picked uh, Indian restaurants that really highlight authentic Indian food. Because now, you know, we love curry so much. Uh, the, the chicken tikka masalas, you, you know, the sort of uh, the very mild curries, like your chicken kormas, all that kind of stuff, it's not enough for us now. We need to we need to be trying the more authentic stuff. So, you know, now we're trying more uh, curry dishes and uh, different styles of biryani and tandoori lamb chops, uh, but all authentically made and, yeah, Brick Lane is a fantastic place uh, to get, you know, sort of Indian Bangladeshi food. Um, there's also uh, some quite high-end restaurants that are popping up in London as well, uh, which are really sort of kind of taking London's food scene by storm. Uh, I know there's, you know, Dishoom has grown in popularity massively, and they sort of serve sort of almost uh, high-end uh, Indian food, but still keeping it fairly authentic. And there's also another one which I uh, actually went to not too long ago called Cinnamon Kitchen, which, uh, again, it's a, a bit more of a high-end version of Indian food, but uh, they're not messing around with it too much. There's still, uh, you know, your classic flavors, and it's uh, it's just so great. Uh, we love, love, love Indian food. Um, in terms of other, uh, other sort of uh, cultures and ethnicities that have uh, inspired London, you know, there's, there's so 
so many, so many. Uh, it'd be hard to, uh, you always feel bad that you can't sort of talk about them all. But, you know, like with uh, America, I'm assuming, you know, Chinese food is huge. Sure. Uh, Chinese food, uh, food is extremely, extremely popular. And you've got some fantastic places in uh, Chinatown near Soho where, uh, you know, you're going to get good quality dim sum and, you know, some of the places will do authentic uh, Chinese food as well. Um, there's a great place on our Shoreditch food tour. We go into a old Spitalfields market, uh, which is, you know, I like to think of it as, you know, the second uh, biggest uh, food market in England, uh, sorry, in London. It's uh, uh, fairly similar to Borough Market, but it's um, uh, it also has some other stores which do uh, kind of like gifts and handbags and all that kind of stuff. I'm more interested in the food, uh, but we go to a, uh, an amazing stall uh, called Pleasant Lady that serves up uh, a dish called a Jean Bing. Do you, do you know what a Jean Bing is? No, never heard of it. Oh, it's uh, I to be honest, I hadn't have heard of it until uh, about four months ago, uh, where I felt like we needed a couple of changes on our Shoreditch tour. And, uh, you know, I was going around tasting some things in Spitalfields Market, and I came across it. And uh, what it is, is they, uh, they have these big uh, sort of crepe uh, frying pans. So not, they're not frying pans. I don't really know how to describe them. But, I you know, when you've seen in, um, when you go into Paris and somewhere and they're making crepes and they pour on a big uh, sort of circular surface, which sure. is obviously heated and uh, they sort of uh, use that little spatula type thing to swerve it around and make a nice thin crepe. And there's uh, not necessarily any sides to the, it's just a flat yeah, surface. Yeah, ex exactly. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, so what they have there is uh, they make this, uh, they make this uh, really thick batter, which they put on, but they spread it out really thinly. Uh, and uh, they crack a couple of eggs in there, and they sort of uh, batter them around a bit so it's spread out uh, over the crepe evenly. Uh, then you've got a load of, uh, sort of like a, it's almost like a little mixed salad with bits of shallot, uh, lots of coriander, chili, uh, spring onions, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then you choose your topping. My personal favorite is cumin lamb. Uh, and the cumin lamb is a sort of a fantastic Eastern uh uh, so, sorry, uh, Western Chinese dish anyway. Uh, and because we're in that area of Shoreditch, you know, we're only a stone's throw away from Brick Lane, uh, that kind of sort of uh, uh, Indo-Chinese influence with the cumin, dried spices and lamb uh, really sort of fits in well. Uh, and what they do is they put a crispy wonton skin uh, in it as well. And they fold it all up, chop it in half and hand it to you. And it's just it's just delicious. Uh, they, on the inside as well, sorry, they have a, it's like a chili oil uh, as well as a peanut sauce or, and a bean sauce. So it's just something, it's so different. I've never had anything like it. And I just couldn't believe that it was, you know, sitting there in Spitalfields Market and that we didn't have it on our tour. So, you know. I now it's it on, on the tour. tour. Yeah, I put it on the tour straight away. It's, it's got a funny backstory, actually, uh, dating back, you know, thousands and thousands of years where uh, there's different kingdoms in China and they're all obviously fighting each other for power. And I think one of the armies, they uh, lost all their cooking utensils and cooking equipment, so they had no woks. Uh, so what they used to do was they used to heat up their shields, and that was kind of where the, the, crepe, uh, the, the crepe shape came from. So, yeah, I think that's a, quite, a, uh, quite a cool story to tell about the Zhan Bing. Yeah. So the Zhan Bing is a Chinese 
dish, but yeah. it has the lamb and the cumin, which has the Indian influence. It's very interesting. I had a guest on a few weeks ago, Rachel Lawden, who uh, is a food historian, and mm-hmm. she makes the argument that all cuisine is imported cuisine. In other words, um, it comes from it, originally it comes from another place, and <laughs> yeah. these these cuisines get somehow integrated into the local cuisine to come up with something new. So when you think about something like, I don't know, spaghetti and meatballs, for example, when I was growing up, spaghetti and meatballs was considered an Italian. If you want Italian food, you got spaghetti and meatballs. Well, spaghetti and meatballs doesn't really exist in Italy per se, or pizza (laughs) in America. We've put uh, pineapple and ham on pizza and we call it Hawaiian pizza. Well, of course, you would never get that in Naples. So I'm wondering, are there any maybe dishes from India or Pakistan or Ethiopia that have sort of integrated into existing British dishes to become more British themselves? Oh, I'll give another example. Uh, In Berlin, they have something called currywurst where yeah. they take curry powder and they put it on the traditional German sausage with ketchup, mm-hmm. you know? So it's it's that kind of idea. And you talked about some of the Indian dishes that were kind of uh, changed mm-hmm. slightly, uh, altered slightly to suit the English palate. The ones that spring to mind, uh, again, sort of kind of in the same uh, vein as the Indian influence is coronation chicken. Uh, if, if, if I am completely wrong about this, and it is actually an incredibly authentic Indian dish, then forgive me. But uh, to my knowledge, Coronation Chicken is a fairly uh, anglicized creation. Uh, and uh, it's essentially uh, kind of a, a chicken, uh, chicken mixed with a few uh, veggies, sort of like little bits of onion and whatnot, uh, in a mayonnaise sauce, but they put curry powder in, in it. Uh, And yeah, so uh, when I say curry powder, it's not a um, it's not like a garam masala or that kind of thing. It's this is from usually just a pot that says curry powder, uh, which is quite a (laughs) quite a British thing, I think. Uh, So, and you know, people love that. You know, you get coronation chickens when you go into supermarkets and you have your sandwich sections. uh, There's usually always a coronation chicken. Another dish. uh, Again, forgive me if this is an incredibly authentic uh, uh, Indian dish. It probably did originate in in India, uh, but we've sort of adapted it, uh, over, over the years, but Kedri, uh, Kedri, which is almost, uh, it's kind of like a, uh, an Indian version of uh, a risotto, I suppose. It's, uh, curried, curried rice. Uh, and what you do is you, uh, mix in smoked haddock. The reason I think this is, it just has to be, uh, sort of like an English, uh, English creation is that it's, you know, it's known to have smoked haddock in, which I don't think was terribly. <laughs> I don't um, think that's popular in India. <laughs> no, exactly. And then, and then you have a, a, a poached egg on top or a, a soft, a couple of soft boiled eggs. Uh, and you know, that's again, absolutely delicious, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Those are the two that spring to mind. Great. Let's talk about, uh, British, uh, the Brits love affair with tea and specifically afternoon tea or high tea. Uh, um, Americans refer to, you know, we talk about this all the time, but it's kind of shorthand for something else. And I would like to know what would be specifically included in 
British afternoon tea, what is it? Is it still a thing? Is it still popular in London? And oh. where would I go to get it? Yeah, I mean, it's still hugely popular. My uh, my two older sisters and my mum love, love, love afternoon tea. Uh, and uh, if anything, I think it's actually getting more popular, maybe for a while. Um, it had sort of lost popularity ever so slightly. Um, but nowadays you're starting to see, uh, you've obviously got your big classic uh, destinations that you can get a really high quality traditional afternoon tea. Uh, a lot of these places would be, uh, you know, in London's places, uh, like the big the big hotels, like the Savoy, uh, the Ritz, uh, the Dorchester, uh, Browns uh, Hotel, those kind of places. Uh, but what you're also starting to see, and the reason I know this, because my, you know, my lovely girlfriend, she uh, she's actually been to a couple of these uh, quirky afternoon tea venues, uh, where you're starting to get different themed ones as well, sort of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory oh, themed cool. afternoon tea, or Alice in Wonderland themed uh, afternoon tea, or a candy themed afternoon tea so there's all sorts of different types of afternoon tea that you can go for me personally i think you know you want to get uh, particularly if you haven't had it before you want to go for a traditional afternoon tea and what that's going to be made up of uh, is uh, you're usually going to get the nice uh, a beautiful nice metal stand which has three layers to it now on the bottom layer uh, what you're going to have are your finger sandwiches uh, this is uh, you're going to have a a selection of fillings. I mean, one of the most popular fillings, again, coronation chicken. So, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> there you go. Uh, you see that loads, loads and loads in afternoon tea. Uh, you've got uh, egg and cress, smoked salmon and cream cheese, all these, you know, beautiful uh, flavors. Uh, and they can have it on a selection of different breads. Uh, a lot of the time, it's either just a nice, um, just like a normal uh, loaf of brown bread or uh, white bread. And they cut it into the, uh, the slices and cut off all the crusts because uh, for whatever reason, we, are, we, we don't like crusts in afternoon tea. Uh, and then, yeah, they're just sort of two, three biters in there. That, yeah, they're gorgeous. And when you, when you go to really good places, uh, sometimes they have uh, some hot options as well. So they might do like a, uh, a cheese toasty as well uh, or a, a kind of focaccia type uh, thing. But, you know, the finger sandwiches are, are a must. Then you've got your second layer, and here's where you're going to have uh, the what I think is the best part of afternoon tea: um, your scones or scones, as some people like to call them. Uh, and you know, you, I think a good one will have uh, a selection of plain scones, uh, and also you're going to have some which have uh, maybe some sultanas or raisins in them, maybe a bit of orange zest or lemon zest, just to give it a tiny bit of flavor. Again, you don't want to muck about with it too much. Uh, and a scone essentially is just quite a, uh, a sort of a, a fairly dense, cakey, bready um, mixture. Uh, but when you cut it open, they, they have to be served warm. They have to be either, you know, baked then and there or, uh, you know, sort of at least heated up in the oven beforehand. Uh, and what they do is they usually wrap up the scones in a um, a napkin uh, or a nice, you know, sort of like a nice, uh, some nice kind of material to sort of hold the heat in. Uh, and then when you cut open into the scone, hopefully you should be seeing steam coming out. So it's nice and soft uh, in the middle. Uh, and that's when, uh, again, you've got the, your next thing. Do you put clotted cream on first or do you put your jam on first? You know, this, uh, <laughs> this is it's the not question. Just it's not just politics, which is dividing the country at the moment, Brent, honestly. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, that, 
that's the great thing. I personally put the the cream on first, clotted cream, uh, and then the jam. I, either way, it doesn't it doesn't make a difference to me. But it's you delicious. wouldn't have butter on your scone. No, on the on an afternoon tea, it's clotted cream and jam. Okay. And clotted cream. Uh, I don't know if you've eaten much clotted cream before, but if you've got something with clotted cream in, you definitely don't need any butter because the calorie. <laughs> Uh, the calorie content is uh, definitely uh, going through the roof already. It's uh, yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty chubby stuff, uh, but absolutely delicious. Clotted cream is one another one of those things which uh, people love to use on desserts as well. You know, sticky toffee pudding. There's uh, you know all these dilemmas that us Brits have. Do we have clotted cream on it? Do we have ice cream on it? Do we have cream on it? Do we have Custard on it. These are things that we have to deal with day in, day out, Brent. So these, these are so. deep, philosophical, <laughs> life-affirming questions that must be answered properly. I know, I know. And you know, I'm making it my goal to get to the bottom of all of it. So, <laughs> um, but yeah. And then moving on, you've got the the pièce de résistance, uh, the the third level of your afternoon tea, and that's going to have uh, some more sweet. Uh, dishes usually very small so uh, what you'll have is you maybe have like a little shot glass filled with a beautiful chocolate mousse or a lemon posset uh, you'll have maybe a little chocolate tart a uh, little fruit tart uh, all sorts of lovely little sweet stuff uh, at the top which is nice but usually at that point you know you're quiet uh, you it's surprisingly filling afternoon tea because it's kind of a, a carbon uh, fat overload right uh, <laughs> but you know the way that I like to do my afternoon tea whenever I go with my uh, my sisters and uh, my family uh, is, you know, for us, afternoon tea is an afternoon tea without making it slightly boozy. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, you know, I think champagne is a delicious, delicious uh, compliment to have with afternoon tea. Uh, I would go as far as saying it's a great pairing uh, to afternoon tea. And uh, we usually don't stop at the one bottle. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, an important for our afternoon tea. And then obviously you've got the tea. Uh, the tea aspect and you know a good quality uh, traditional place will just have a you know a beautiful selection of uh, of different teas you're going to have your ones which are more well known like your English breakfasts your old greys your uh, green teas that type of stuff and all of this by the way will be uh, made using proper tea leaves there should not be a tea bag in sight uh, but, then, <laughs> but then you're going to get your more uh, I don't know, sort of slightly exotic ones like Darjeeling, chai, that kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, as I said, there's all sorts of other afternoon tea places popping up uh, in and around London, which uh, are doing some funky things. You know, I went to uh, an afternoon tea place where they did a, a gin tea, uh, which was interesting. It was kind of, <laughs> uh, I don't actually know exactly what went into it, but there was definitely gin in it. So uh, as, a, as a gin lover, I... Uh, I couldn't resist. Success. Uh, but exactly, exactly. Before we let you go, David, let's talk about English pubs um, uh, and the beer culture in London. I, I have to assume that I haven't been to London in a few years, but I have to assume that the craft beer boom is taking over in London like it is all over the place. Tell us some of your favorite pubs to go to and tell us what kind of beers, what flavors, what uh, what types of beers we can find when we go into an English pub? Yeah, well, what's great is similar to with uh, gin as well and a lot of spirits. Uh, when you go into, you know, your bog standard pubs these days, particularly if you're in uh, central London, 
they've got such a great selection of beer now. You know, 20 years ago, it would have been, you know, maybe a couple of choices of lager, maybe a, a couple of choices of cask out, and then you've got a Bombay Sapphire and a Smirnoff uh, vodka uh, behind the bar. But now we've got an amazing selection uh, of all of these goodies. Uh, in terms of great places to go for beer, uh, there's loads. You know, I, I touched upon earlier the Bermondsey Beer Mile has some uh, really great places uh, to get some you know, good quality craft beer. Uh, we actually do our beer tour in Shoreditch, uh, which is, you know, Shoreditch kind of has that reputation for being a quite quirky place. Uh, and whereas with Bermondsey, you've got lots of lovely craft distilleries popping up making gin in Shoreditch uh, and the East End. Uh, you've kind of got lots of uh, little microbreweries popping up as well. It's kind of a nice, uh, that Shoreditch area has a, a good history uh, with beer. Because obviously the old, the old Truman's Brewery used to be there, which is the actual Truman's Chimney is still there, still very visible. They don't make their beer there anymore. But uh, Shoreditch has that history of, uh, of beer. Uh, one of the best places that we go to on our tour uh, is the Long Arm Pub, which has their own microbrewery. Uh, and again, I was mentioning earlier about how for our tours, it's particularly our drink tours, it's so important to us to uh, include something where you kind of get to see the process or hear the process from uh, from someone who works there. And, uh, you know, they it's a beautiful pub, the Long Arm Pub. And then just tucked in the corner, uh, you can see the microbrewery uh, brewing away and they're making some really funky stuff uh, they're they're brewing different types of beers for different occasions you know they're making beer with mince pies for christmas you know they make pumpkin beer for halloween uh, all sorts of lovely stuff but in terms of good quality english beer we've got you know so if you've always got your your imported lagers they're always going to have a, a place in an english pub or bar uh, for good reason, you know, they're delicious and they go fantastic with a curry. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, when you're talking about, you know, old fashioned ale and whatnot, you, you, you've got to talk about your, your lovely car scales, which are pulled from the pump. Uh, or what, uh, what a lot of Americans I've met call uh, warm beer, uh, because obviously it's not, uh, it's not chilled or uh, carbonated. Uh, so a lot of people sort of don't find it too appetizing, but I think when you try some really good versions of it, uh, it's absolutely delicious. And you get, you've got amazing places that do that all over the country, not just London. I love the, I love the cascales, but I think for Americans, it does take a little bit of getting used to because it's yeah. so different than what we're used to here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously we love, I think our taste buds have changed quite a lot over the years. You know, we love things that are ice cold and we love things that are really fizzy. So, uh, but and car scale is neither of those, <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's its own thing. It's, 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 it's its own thing. And it's, uh, it's definitely got a place, uh, in a pub for me. I think it's, it's always good to see a different selection of, uh, proper car scales, but then you've also, uh, got, you know, the more modern type ales, you know, so your IPAs, which do tend to be carbonated and, uh, chilled. Uh, and then you've, yeah, you've got, uh, massive, massive, massive amount of different IPAs, APAs. Uh, uh, you've got one thing that I've noticed popping up in a lot of pubs recently, which I never saw, uh, you know, before 
a few months ago is we're starting to get, uh, you know, sours. Sour okay, sours are hitting. Yeah. 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 And I, I tried them uh, for the first time back in March because I was in Toronto and obviously Toronto, I think North America as a whole has a real booming sort of craft beer uh, industry. It's like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of microbreweries popping up. Uh, and I tried sours for the first time and it was kind of one of those things I had a, had a couple of sips and I went, what? Uh, <laughs> it, it was, yeah, it kind of tasted like kombucha or yeah. uh, vinegar. Uh, but, you know, the more I had it, the more I sort of started to appreciate it. And then I tried a few more and I realized that, you know, not all of them are incredibly sort of vinegary. Some of them have a more of a citrusy note to them. But, yeah, you're getting things like passion fruit sours uh, in, you know, quite standard pubs now. So it's uh, it's really, really cool. Really cool. I love the idea. You know, I love an English, a traditional English pub, but I love the idea of going into one of these microbreweries and sampling, you know, what people are experimenting with and trying new things. Mm. I think that's really exciting. And um, that'll definitely be a place for us to go on our next trip to London. David, before, before we uh, sign off with you, Remind people where they need to go to sign up for a secret food tour when they're in London, and you've got a lot to choose from. Yeah, well, the best place to find us is on our website, secretfoodtours.com. Uh, and what you're going to find there is not uh, just our London tours, but we've got tours all around the world. You know, we've got tours, uh, uh, we've got tours in Africa, in Asia, uh, we've got tours in Australia, all around Europe. We've got uh, loads now in north america as well canada mexico usa uh, but we've yeah we've got also we've got one, uh, one new tour as well in peru which is lovely so we've got uh, south america ticked off the list we just need to get a food tour in antarctica and then we've covered all of the continents <laughs> secret food tours antarctica yeah um but yeah you can find us on our website secretfoodtours.com also under the same name uh, on social media pages on instagram uh, and facebook uh, the easiest way to book with us is just online. It's a really simple booking method. Uh, but we also offer uh, private tours as well. In that case, just get in contact with us. Uh, and we're always uh, up for arranging sort of private experiences. And with that, uh, you know, I, I personally don't mind sort of accommodating people's different needs and whatnot. Sometimes I quite like the challenge of uh, making a slightly bespoke tour that still obviously hints at what, we're, what we want with our tours. But uh, you know, if someone wants a bar market tour, but they want a bit more of a focus on cheese, then, you know, we can usually do that. It's a, it's a, it's a fun challenge to have. So, uh, yeah, secretfoodtours.com. You just brought up one thing that I'd like to, uh, that I'd like to mention is can people, uh, do vegetarian and or vegan on these tours? Yeah, we're really, really accommodating to vegetarians and vegans, uh, also accommodating to gluten freeze. It's, a uh, it's pretty easy for us. Uh, sometimes when we're in places like Borough Market and Spitterfields Market, uh, when you get someone who can't eat a certain thing or is a vegetarian or is a vegan, uh, all you have to do is walk about five yards to uh, buy something else and you know, you're going to find something which is vegetarian, is vegan. So yeah, we can accommodate all sorts. David Cotter of Secret Food Tours, thank you so much. We look forward to uh, seeing you down the road. And thanks for being on Destination Eat Drink. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. All right. There you go.
Bangers and mash, gin cocktails, afternoon tea, sausage rolls. London certainly has tons to choose from. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Destination Eat Drink. Thanks to David Cotter for joining me, and thanks to Ed Silla of Radio Misfits for distributing the show. Remember to subscribe at radiomisfits.com or listen at destinationeatdrink.com. Just click on the podcast tab. Next week, it's going to be a great show. I will be visiting one of my favorite places in Croatia, and we're going to talk about the seaside town of Rovin in Istria. Until then, I'm Brent Peterson, and I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. <laughs>